Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Gunn, your host, and this podcast we chat with Dave Bio Baroneg. Dave is a former F 14 Tomcat Rio, Top Gun student, and finally Top Gun instructor. As well as talking about his time on operational squadrons and being an instructor, he also chats about his involvement with the Hollywood movie Top Gun. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrew interview to help the channel going for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Hey, good afternoon. My name is Dave Baronic. My call sign's bio. I was an F-14 radar intercept officer or Rio. That's the guy in the back seat of the two-seat F-14 Tomcat, like Goose in the movie Top Gun. <laughs> and, and now the Top Guns come out, all you have to say is like Goose. And I was also a uh, Top Gun instructor, and I was an instructor when they made the movie. Um, I served in the Navy for 20 years. I retired in 1999. I flew F-14s for most of that time. Uh, once I retired, I, had the, I got the idea to write a book about my experiences, and so I did. And I'm here to talk to Mike and Air Crew Interviews today to uh, tell you about my experiences and answer whatever questions you have. So, Well, brilliant. Uh, well, thanks for being on the show, uh, Bio. So when did you uh, first become interested in aviation? I would have to say, you know, I've thought about that, uh, um, and I would have to say that, that it was around 10 years old. Before that age, you know, I, I can think back. I, I had these ideas of uh, various jobs I wanted to do. Uh, one of them was like to be an astronomer, just the typical thing that kids do when they're when they're little. But once I once I settled on, once I thought about um, being a pilot, I picked that and I never wavered after I made that decision. It had to be around ten years old. Mm-hmm. Then and then I used the uh, the word pilot uh, when I I'm a Rio. Uh, my goal was to be a, a fighter pilot. I wanted to either go Air Force or Navy. Um, the whole time I was a teenager. And in fact, it wasn't until the last possible day when I had to uh, to choose in high school, whether I, when I had to choose whether to go Air Force ROTC or Navy ROTC in college, uh, that was the day that I picked the Navy. Uh, and for me, that worked out well because I wanted to fly fighters. And in my freshman year of college, my eyesight went bad. So I had to wear glasses. And you can't be a pilot uh, and wear glasses. Now there's all kinds of options for uh, for corrective surgery, but in 1975 that wasn't an option. Cause. So the F-14 was new, and I just said, you know what? I'll set my goal on becoming a backseater in the F-14 Tomcat. Now they still uh, had more applicants than they had seats, and it was and the standards were very high. So I still had to select that. I had to request it compete for it. Um, but eventually I made my way and uh, I became an F-14 Rio. So could you tell us about your flight training? When did it start? <laughs> I hope you've got a, a drink also wherever you are watching <laughs> this. Yeah, my flight training started in uh, NAS Pensacola in 1979. And I was fortunate I got to go to Pensacola just a couple of weeks after I graduated from college. So uh, that took about uh, about eight months in Pensacola. No, 11 months, 11 months in Pensacola. And that was uh, basic aviation training, which all NFOs and pilots go through. Then they split the pilots off and send them to uh, pilot training bases. And all the NFOs go to the basic NFO squadron for several months. Then they split them off 
and they send them uh, to uh, the training in their in their uh, their community, like Bombardier Navigator or uh, Rio. So the whole t- uh, duration of that was about 11 months. Then I uh, headed out to NAS Miramar in San Diego, where I spent another eight months in the F-14 RAG. Uh, the RAG is the RAG. Uh, it's a, it's an uh, obsolete term, which uh, used to stand for replacement air group, but now it's called uh, Readiness Training Squadron, I believe, RTS. Mm-hmm. But everybody still calls it the RAG. And that's where every type of airplane has a rag, and it trains new guys in uh, to fly that type of airplane. Um, so when I was at the rag, I was there for eight months. I got about uh, 95 flight hours in the F-14. And when I finished the rag, I was sent to a fleet squadron. It was April 1981, and I was combat ready. Wow. Although, as I was to learn, I still had a lot to learn. <laughs> So, obviously, going back to the RAG, what were your first thoughts when you saw the F-14? You know, Mike, to, to look back at that now, or, or for a novice to look at the airplane, you would look at it and you would think uh, it's very complex. But and, and when we got out there, you know, we, we knew it was complex. But my feeling was, you know, cautious optimism and, you know, confidence because... Yeah. Just a year before that, I'd been in college, graduated from college in June of 1979, got to the F-14 rag around uh, July of 1980, and I go, you know, I've come a long way already. The Navy's got this good training program, and so, you know, I I felt like, okay, this is my new machine. (laughs) On the other hand, it's big. You know, you can't deny it's a big airplane. It's huge. Yeah, and and it was impressive, but... uh, I I don't really remember feeling intimidated or anything like that. So can you remember your first trip in the F-14? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I flew with a guy named Crush Gallhofer. We, uh, we were going to fly in the afternoon on a Friday afternoon. We were supposed to take off around two o'clock or three o'clock, mm-hmm. and the maintenance didn't have an airplane ready because the the planes had just been beat beat up all week, and and so they didn't have any up airplanes. Mm-hmm. So you know everybody wanted to just call it a week and get out of there, but Crush really wanted to go flying because I needed to get my first flight at Miramar so that he and I could fly to Denver the next day. Right. So. He goes, you know, I was his ticket to Denver. Mm-hmm. So the the duty officer, uh, the maintenance control guys, everybody goes, you know, can we just go home? And he goes, nope. He goes, <laughs> we're going flying. And so uh, it had to be done in daytime also, even though Crush, you know, had more than a thousand hours. Uh, he was a lieutenant instructor pilot. And, and I was a student Rio. The first flight had to be all daytime. And so, you know, finally around... 5.30 or something, we walk out to the jet and climb in whatever time, you know, an hour before sunset. We walked out, climbed in. The base was silent because there was no one else flying. We're the only two guys out there working, our small crew, you know, plane captain, starting guys and all that stuff. We started up, took off, and um, 
you know, it, it wasn't just like the simulator because nothing can prepare you for that afterburner takeoff. I can imagine. But the procedures were just like the simulator. Mm-hmm. So all you've got to do is, you know, compartmentalize your senses and say, like, I, you know, focus, focus, focus. Mm-hmm. And, and we got through it. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it was this flight, my very first flight, when uh, I started up the system and I had nothing but little dots on my scope, no, no text, no. D- and uh, and Crush goes, well, did you push all the display buttons? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's like the the second thing you're supposed to do when you start up. And I go, <laughs> oh. I, go, oh. I, go I go, that would probably be pretty important. Yeah. So he goes, yeah, he goes, you know, who is this guy? <laughs> anyway, so uh, it, it all went much better after that. So we did our quick flight. He goes, well, you want to go supersonic? I go, yes. But so have you ever been supersonic in a jet fighter, Mike? I haven't, no, unfortunately. Okay. Guess what? It's not a big deal. Yeah. You you sit there, you watch the needle go up. Suddenly it goes, you know, above 1.0. And he goes, okay, that's it. So then we came back and landed, went home. He goes, okay, you know, be here tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock or whatever. And uh, we took off and headed to Denver. And... As soon as, I mean, he's evaluating me the whole time because it is a training flight for me and I'm a student. Yeah. So, you know, he's evaluating my flight planning, my communications, my navigation. We get airborne. He goes, find some targets on the radar. I mean, so. Yeah. But, you know, what what a classroom, an F-14. I know, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so can you tell us about your first squadron, uh, frontline squadron you were posted to? Oh, yeah. My first squadron, uh, I joined it in um, April 1981, and it was uh, VF-24, the Fighting Renegades. (laughs) And we were flying F-14A Tomcats. Now, at that time, like I said, there were still some Phantom Squadrons around, but there were a lot of F-14 squadrons, and and VF-24 had recently won a few of the awards given out to the F-14 community. So it was was a good, strong squadron, had uh, good spirit. And I joined it as an ensign. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. So I just walk into them and, you know, I'm going, well, this is my new squadron. And they're looking at me like this is our new guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my friends from Pensacola, whose uh, call sign was Rums, uh, we went through Pensacola together, the RAG together, and we joined VF-24 together on the same day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we just walked around like, you know, fetal D and fetal dumb, a couple <laughs> of ensigns or ensigns you know checking into a fighter squadron mm-hmm. it, it could be overwhelming if you didn't just say you know hey this is what i do this is my job and also at the squadron i mean they they get new guys all the time and mm-hmm. so they're ready for that they take care of you uh the duty officer you know you get there you've got a check-in sheet he calls you, you know your your uh the chief from your maintenance department to show you where the work center is because, you know, you have to have a ground job in the Navy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, uh, you just you just get there and and just, you know, get up to speed and, and jump, join the machine. It, it's pretty amazing. So did you get to choose your squadron or is it picked for you? <laughs> That's like, uh, just thinking back on that. I mean, I guess, I don't know if I was naive or if we were all naive, but, but when we got to the end of the rag, they uh, gave us a uh, sheet of paper and they said, you know, write down the squadrons that you would like to go to. 
So Rums and I finished the rag on the same day, and uh, and we we walked around Miramar and we went to some squadrons and we talked to people. You know, okay, who's just getting back from deployment? Who's just you know won the awards? Who's got a cool looking paint scheme? You know, and you know ways to judge your squadron. And so I put down three squadrons. Well, VF twenty four wasn't any of my list, so the navy the navy sends you where they want you to send you. So what was the, uh, the role of the squadron on the carrier? Uh, the carrier back then, well, it hasn't, this hasn't changed that much, but it had two F-14 squadrons. Oh, those were the days. <laughs> and then, uh, and then in, when I was in VF-24, we had one A-6 squadron, which was medium attack, two mm-hmm. A-7 squadrons, helicopters, uh, E-2, E-A-6, and probably uh, uh, E-A-3 Sky Warriors, yeah. detachment of a few Sky Warriors. And so the the carrier deploys for several for several reasons. Um, you know, a political science major or a, or a person who's who that's their hobby, they could explain it uh, very clearly. But one, it shows U.S. It's a very tangible expression of U.S. interests mm-hmm. around the globe. Uh, two, it uh, it puts you know tactical combat forces ready to go at a moment's notice, you know, around the world because there's always several carriers deployed. Now, if you deploy to the Indian Ocean and something starts in another part of the world, well, you're going to take a few days or a week to get there, but mm-hmm. but you're going to arrive combat ready. Yeah. So when you're out on the carrier, you spend some time, a lot of, you spend, you fly, um, maybe two days out of three or, or something like that, maybe every, every other day. Mm-hmm. And, and that varies also depending on a lot of things. And those are all, uh, those are training flights to some extent. Mm-hmm. Okay. For, for one thing, uh, carrier landings are a very perishable skill for the pilot, but, but it's not just about the pilots. It's about the flight deck crew. It's about the uh, air traffic controllers everyone's got to keep doing this over and over again and until they do it very well. And I mean, once they get up on that level, you've got to maintain proficiency. So the, the more you operate, the better off it is. But in addition, we were always loading weapons, you know, downloading weapons, changing weapons, testing them. Uh, we did aerial refueling every flight. And the worst thing was, uh, if you aerial refueled, which was very, di- you know, it's challenging for mm-hmm. the pilot. But it was just practice plugs because they go, well, we're not giving you any gas. So it's like, <laughs> oh, man, so the pilot's got to work through all that. I mean, especially like night so- aerial refueling. Yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. Practice bleeding. Yeah. So so all that's, so that's what the carrier does. Uh, as a fighter guy, Especially, and, and it's changed over the years. But back in the 80s, um, we did a lot of uh, simple training, simple intercept training. You know, sometimes we'd get a, uh, a person would carry, uh, an airplane would carry a jamming pod. And so we'd run against uh, some ECM or something, but that wasn't very often. Most of the time, a lot of time, it was just one versus one intercepts. And we did not have... We wanted to conserve our fuel for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. so we were going at at max conserve airspeed of 225 knots wow. indicated. Wow! And so you're just out there, two F-14s bumping heads, and you know, it, it was kind of dull uh, 
for long periods of time. But Mike, I would sit there and I'd go, I'm getting bored in an F-14. Exactly. So um, I want to talk, well, a lot of my viewers are quite interested in, I don't know what you call it in the Navy, but over here they call it DACT, Dissimilar Air Combat Training. So I just wondering if you went up against um, any of the guys, other jets on the carrier or even Navy or the U.S. Air Force. Oh, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, we we called it uh, just uh, uh, ACM, Air Combat. And, and we used a few terms generically. You know, there was, there were, uh, there's divisions, basic fighter maneuvers and, and uh, DACT and stuff like that. Uh, and that's, yeah, I mean, how long have I been talking? I haven't even talked about dogfighting, but that's what we all loved about the yeah. F-14, me included. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Mike, my first two flights in Pensacola in the T-2, I got airsick. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. But, but you know, it wasn't a big deal. I had a barf bag with me. Um and it, it did not dim my enthusiasm at all mm-hmm. because, for one thing, I got over it as, you know, rapidly as my flying experience went on. Mm-hmm. So I get into the uh, VF-24. Well, well, one, we had had a taste of ACM in the TA-4s in Pensacola mm-hmm. uh, and a little bit in the T-2s. Then, two, we did it in the RAG, and then we get into VF-24, and, uh, and so we fought whenever we could. The big thing about uh, dogfighting is it takes a lot of gas. Yeah. So one way that carriers would would deal with this is, and and the carrier runs on a one hour, 45 minute cycle, or at least that's what it did back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they didn't want to launch a whole bunch of tankers just so the Tomcats could, could, you know, go to burner and and dogfight. Mm -hmm. So one thing that carriers often did, or some carriers did, was the first event of the day would be a short cycle, a one-hour cycle. So instead of one plus 45, you would take off, you'd go do whatever ACM you could do, and then by then you'd be, uh, you know, after 15, 20 minutes of that, you'd be back on your fuel ladder. Okay, so the one-hour cycle, they'd launch uh, whoever wanted to fight, could go up and and burn their fuel, uh, use burner a lot more. Mm-hmm. So in my experience, uh, so let's get to this. I mean. From our planning for this discussion, I knew this question was going to come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time I fought an F-15 mm-hmm. was in the uh, in the RAG. Okay. Wow, that's pretty quick. Well, but, I mean, I was a, I was a student at Rio, yeah. but and my pilot was uh, another Tomcat community legend, Rat Willard. He was okay. a RAG instructor, lieutenant back then, and later he'd be a Top Gun instructor, and, and I'd be there with him. But. But we went out and uh, fought this F-15. I do not remember the details of that. It was 1v1. But when we landed, he goes, huh, that went better than I thought. (laughs) Uh, In the RAG, I also fought against a uh, a two versus two against uh, a a TA-4 and an F-15. Okay, right. Now, that's interesting because those are two planes that do differently. Also, when I was in the RAG, I fought a one versus two against a TA-4 and an F-105 Thunder Chief. Wow, okay. Which was, That's very well, strange. That was, well, for a kid who loved airplanes all along, I just loved seeing you know the mighty Thunder Chief in the air. Yeah, I can cool. imagine. But we did fine. Even though it was 1v2, we did great. I was flying with Drifty Smith, who uh, Drifty, funny call sign, but uh, he was a good stick. Yeah. So then out on the carrier, uh, 
if we flew uh, with without using burner and without using especially, I mean, we had maneuvering flaps sometimes. Sometimes we, we didn't. But uh, sometimes the A7E with maneuvering flaps and no uh, no external load, that was probably the best, uh, one of the better opponents we could get. Wow, that's very strange. I wouldn't, wouldn't have thought that. So, Bio, obviously Top Gun is probably a big part of your you know, career and your story, but uh, it's not just a movie, is it? So you went to Top Gun as an instructor. Can you tell us about how this happened? Yes. The, uh, and, and again, what I'm telling you has changed. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind, uh, you know, I don't think I'm revealing anything behind the curtain. Yeah. Uh, when I went through as a student in 1982, it was incredible. I went through uh, with, with Jaws, who, uh, he, you know, he was a, a focused pilot and a talented pilot, and he and I worked well together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were very candid with each other about our performance, you know, how I could help him fight the jet if I needed anything from him, etc. And our wingman was also uh, very capable, uh, Boomer and Jake, and we, worked, we just worked well as a team. So five weeks of incredible flying, very challenging, but also, you know, to go back to, to what we talked about earlier, I felt I was ready for it. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, I knew we were going up in a, a 2V unknown, could be six Top Gun guys, and it's like, you know, let's go. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't have trepidation or anything. Get in the uh, – so at the end of the class, uh, at the little graduation ceremony, a couple of instructors – said, if you want to come back, let, you know, come see us. Mm-hmm. If you think about coming back as an instructor. So, I mean, that didn't really even register with me. I thought it was just like kind of a throwaway line that they said. But but the thought just, I guess it just planted in my brain. And then uh, two months later, I asked uh, Streak, who was a former Top Gun instructor who was in VF-24, mm-hmm. Uh, I asked Streak, I said, Streak, you know, what does it take to be a Top Gun instructor? And so Streak said, well, what did they say when you graduated? And I said, they said, come see him. He goes, you ought to go see him. Mm. So so that's how I got to be an instructor. The flying, the Top Gun instructor flying, God, that was just tremendous. Yeah, I was I mean, just going to ask, what, did you, what aircraft did you actually fly at Top Gun? Okay, so when I was there, they had uh, single-seat A4 Skyhawks. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of F5Es and four two-seat, I think they had three, three two-seat F5Fs, probably three F5Fs. Yeah. And the F5Es and Fs we had heard had been uh, intended for South Vietnam, but uh, they were they were in route, you know, they're in production or something when South Vietnam fell. And so they said, well, they're not going there anymore. So the Navy took them. That's oh. what we heard. Okay. And so I showed up there as an, uh, I don't remember exactly what year they got them, but I was there as an instructor. I arrived in 1984. And uh, occasionally I would fly in the TA-4 mm-hmm. because we flew also with VF, the adversary squadrons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, VA-45, VF-43, mm-hmm. VF-26, um, VC-13, whoever. Mm-hmm. Um Okay, and here, I'll admit this also. You, I, I may get you know hate mail, but <laughs> all the pilots that I ever, that ever expressed an opinion liked the A four. 
Okay. The A4 Skyhawk. Nice. But for me, I didn't like the TA4. I loved the F5F. So, I mean, I, I'm not a pilot, so I just didn't like the way the TA4 felt. The F5 just felt so much better. It certainly looks better, in my opinion. You know, you look at the TA4 from the right angle, it's a cool airplane, and the single-seat A4 is a pretty cool little airplane. I mean, that, it's just a cool little machine. And in terms of capability for an airplane that was designed as long as, you know, anyway, A4 was a, was a great airplane, mm -hmm. but, but I like the F5. The yeah. F5 had a lot of room. Uh, it, was, it had a very nice flight. Uh, it had controls in the back, so I got to fly. <laughs> you want me to tell you a little bit about flying? Yeah, of course. Go for it. Okay, so you know, let's say this is a Top Gun F5, and this is this is a F5, and this is Bio and the instructor and the Top Gun pilot in the F5F. Mm -hmm. So we'd be flying out here in tight formation, and the pilot would go, "Okay, Bio, you've got it." So right away, I'd start controlling, controlling, and I drift out of formation. <laughs> they go, "Okay, I got it." Now try it again, and I'd start over controlling, over controlling. <laughs> so it it was very, it was uh, humbling at first, flying the F5F, but then little by little, guys give you tips, and you get more experience. Mm -hmm. And then for me, just one day, it's like, blam, I can do place. this. Yeah. And so after that, I had the formation thing down. But I mean, you know, I was just adequate, of course. And then in terms of engagements, uh, the only time the only time I flew an engagement in the F5F was instructor only. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know what other Rios did and if they flew against the class or whatever. Um, but I, I was not a good ACM pilot. You know, it's just <laughs> that was just that exceeded my capability at the time because, you know, I, I didn't have the muscle memory. I didn't, you know, and. And you can think all you want, but just remembering to do everything and then analyzing everything, it's just like, oh, if you think up there, you're, you're dead. Is that the line for the movie? I think is it is, yeah. I want you to actually kind of describe what your role was at Top Gun and maybe run us through a typical day or sortie that you used to, you used to conduct. The, uh, let's, let's get the, uh, the ground stuff out of the way first. Yeah. <clears throat> All Top Gun instructors had a ground job. I, I think I was the uh, AV, or aviation weapons division officer, and then I became a uh, the assistant training officer or something like that, one of the training officers. Yeah. Um, and then we all had, uh, most instructors had two lectures. I had one lecture in the Top Gun class and one lecture in the FAST class. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, uh, and fast is, you know, that's a whole, that's a outer air battle, uh, maritime air superiority training program. I don't think they do that anymore. Mm -hmm. So, so you, if you give your lecture, so you give your lecture once during a class, but then also uh, you're always giving it to other groups. I mean, I would give it, you'd give it to a squadron at Miramar. You'd give it to some senior officers who were there for refresher. We fly up to uh, El, El Toro Marine Corps air station back then or Lemoore and I would give one of my lectures to the uh, Hornets. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you, you gave your lecture more than, uh, more than five or six times a year. You usually give it, you know, once or twice a month. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
Uh, but after you've got it, it it's uh, it's it's not nearly as stressful subsequent times as it is the first time. Yeah. So then, when the class is going on, uh, I would uh, plan, brief, and lead uh, about two flights every Top Gun class, and that there were about thirty flights during the class at that time, and every instructor. You know, they, they kind of split it up. Some guys briefed three times. Uh, some guys probably only briefed once. I briefed about two for every class. And what that means is you've got a lot of work to do. You've got a lot of planning to do. You've got a lot of put a lot of information on the board. Uh, you've got to brief the, uh, the fighters on their learning objectives, which is their learning objectives, which is like the, the uh, you know, the uh, overhead or or the um, metadata or something like that. It's it's the learning objectives. Then you got to brief them on the mission scenario objective. So there's two you know there's two things yeah. going on here. They they don't go out there like they're Top Gun students. They go out there like they're American fighter pilots in a combat environment. Yeah. So they've got but they've got to think both ways. Well, I mean, for the students, there's not much uh, there's not much Top Gun to it. They're they're doing their mission. So I'm, I may have made too much out of this. Mm-hmm. It was the instructors who really had to be more concerned with simulating the enemy or potent adversary and being Top Gun instructors. The, uh, here's the laydown for, uh, for for Top Gun, and, th- and this was set from the first you know the first class back in 1969. Yeah, a squadron would send uh, usually one airplane. And the, the pilot and Rio, if it was a two seater, and then a small maintenance detachment. Mm-hmm. And so the the uh, local squadrons at Miramar, that was easy. You know, they just operated out of their home squadron usually. Mm-hmm. The Oceana squadrons uh, usually came over with a jet uh, from Oceana, and they actually had very good availability. But I think they all had like a letter of agreement with another squadron. That that if they needed to, they could borrow a Miramar squadron jet. Right. But I'm I'm telling you, I mean, uh, the whole time I was at Top Gun, very few jets of any kind missed a sortie. I don't remember any at all. Um, because you know the maintenance guys worked very hard, and you know the I mean the F-14 by that time was was doing okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I was there, the class was five weeks long. And now I believe it's nine and a half weeks, and they take their jet to Fallon, mm-hmm. Fallon, Nevada. Yeah. So you know the Top Gun guys fly their jets, and the the class guys fly their jets, and you go out over the desert or over the ocean or up to China Lake or wherever, and you do your stuff. <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, so, could you explain your time and how many years you were at Top Gun? Like, did you enjoy it? I can oh yeah! To yes, <laughs> it was. Uh, I mean, when I first got there, and when I was working to take over my uh, my my first my class lecture, and actually my fast lecture also. Uh, working for my F fourteen intercept lecture, I was working seven days a week, and I was working about twelve to fourteen hours a day, Monday through Friday, wow. from seven a.m. to like seven or nine p.m. Wow, flying, 
lecture prep, lecture practice, etc. But again, it's I was my choice to be there. And and the other thing is, you see all these other instructors. I mean, you watched them when you were a student. You see them now when when you're there when you uh, audit their courses for uh, for consistency and stuff. And you're on this team, and you go. I need to perform at that level. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like they're saying, bio, you need to do this. It's like, this is what we all do. You know, if you want to be on this team, you have to do, okay. So that, but that was a surge also. Those long hours I just told you was a surge. As soon as you complete your lecture, you can go back to a normal, you know, normal work day, seven to whatever. Uh, And, and, uh, and then during the day, you know, I mean, a big part of our job was flying jets. So, yeah, that's, that's the cool part. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Yeah. So it was. Uh, so I was there for two and a half years. Uh, at the end of my tour, I was thinking, you know, this is pretty cool. I'd like to stick around. So I put my letter in. Uh, to the, I asked the Navy to extend me six months, and they go, you know, the response was very quick. <laughs> <laughs> No, you need to get back out to the fleet. But they did give me like uh, whatever, one more month cause, or something to, to give me a standard 30-month tour. So I said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll take it. But also, uh, I'll be honest with you, I was kind of missing the F-14 and being in an F-14 squadron. Yeah. And, and as much as I said the pace, you know, slacks off <clears> – <throat> Or I mean, you don't you don't work fourteen hour days. It is still it's it's uh, demanding, and and uh, I talked to a couple of other instructors, and they they've said that uh, when they you know walked out of the hangar on that la- on their last day, they go they didn't have anything left. You know, they had just they put done. it <laughs> into Top Gun. Yeah, and so it's you know it's very demanding. We can't speak about Top Gun without talking about the movie, can we? Nope. So, and you were a part of this. Could you tell us how this came about? Mike, we did the best we could. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the, the movie started innocently. There was a, uh, a magazine, a glossy magazine called California Magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, an aviation, or a, a guy who wrote magazine articles, just wrote an article about uh, a couple of F, an F-14 crew going through Top Gun as, a, as students. Mm-hmm. He just wrote the article, you know, and, and you know, he's, he's a good writer, so he made it sound really good. And he put all the drama in and all this personality stuff. And then the photos were by Heater. So it, do you know who Heater is? Chuck Heatley. He published a book called The Cutting Edge back in the, the 80s. No, I can't say I've heard, no. Heater was... A great, a great photographer, but he was also a great fighter pilot. He had been a Top Gun instructor, and he'd flown some other things. He was an F-14 pilot. Cool. Excuse me. So he, his uh, pictures illustrated the magazine article. Mm-hmm. And these producers up in Hollywood got caught a glimpse of it, and they said, you know, this would make a great movie. They immediately saw a movie in it. So they spent a couple of years uh, planning it, getting approval and stuff. And then they showed up to film the movie. Mm-hmm. Now, there had been occasional TV shows. There was a, a segment of the, I think the Clint Eastwood movie, uh, Firefox. Is that the Clint Eastwood movie? Anyway, yeah. Clint, 
was in the simulator at Miramar. They didn't make a ripple, you know. I mean, they didn't really mean anything. And so when people said, oh, these guys are coming to film this movie, I'm going like, you know, seen it before, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Dismissed it. Well, then they showed up, and it's like, oh, this is a big deal. Because <laughs> you know, they had all the... Uh, sound engineers and all i mean they just had a full crew and it 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 wasn't excessive people either because it it was very interesting to see them um to see these hollywood people the production people were very professional very careful i mean they you know they were they're not a bunch of Mm goof-offs they're professional people and they work at a high level Mm -hmm. That's how you make a good movie. Yeah. The other thing was that they, you know, they respected us. Now, when they make a hospital movie, they respect nurses and doctors. When they make a firefighter movie, they respect firemen. So, I mean, this was just our week, you know, to be their subjects. Yeah. But, you know, I thought they did a good job and it it certainly was amusing, you know, if nothing else. (laughs) So when the first script showed up, uh, Rat, who I mentioned before, uh, Rat Willard, he, he was the project officer. He got the script, and he read it, and he goes, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> and he would bring it into the ready room, and he'd read, like, a passage, and we'd just all go, like, what? <laughs> so he went, and uh, he called the Navy public affairs guys in uh, back here in Washington, where I am now. Not public affairs, but Washington. <laughs> and he told him, he goes, this is this script is bad. And they go, well, you better help them because this movie's getting made. So, you know, you better help them if you don't want to be embarrassed. Yeah. (laughs) So rat put in a lot of time, evenings, weekends and stuff and, you know, and helped to clean up the script. And then when they finally started shooting uh, again, it was obvious that uh, Tony Scott, the director and Clay Lacey, who was a Learjet pilot and a famous uh, racing pilot, I mean, all, they had a lot of talent, and they they worked. They thought about the flying scenes, you know. They thought about them. They planned them. They discussed them with us. They used models, you know, okay. But, but they briefed the flights very professionally. So I will say uh, one, of the, one of the happy things that wasn't planned was the F-14 lead was Bozo. Yeah. Lloyd uh, Abel. And I talked to Bozo a couple of years about this. I mean, I remember meeting him back then, but it's like, you know, I'm just another F-14 pilot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, he probably doesn't remember me either. Oh yeah, just mm-hmm. top gun instructor. But I talked to him about this recently and, and one, Bozo is a great storyteller, so I'm not going to tell the whole story, but bottom line is I don't think he was supposed to even be involved in the movie. Oh, really? His squadron was on detachment. He was left back as the uh, home guard and as the senior officer because he was a lieutenant commander. And and they started to film the movie earlier than planned. Mm -hmm. They started to film the F-14 scenes. And they said, well, we need a guy today to fly the jet. Mm -hmm. So it was Bozo. And the director, Tony Scott, said, I like you. And and Bozo, I mean, he earns this. He deserves it. Mm-hmm. And and you did a good job. I like working with you. You're the F-14 lead. 
Wow. <laughs> so, that's pretty I mean, cool. That's the way I understand it. So, yeah. So, but Bozo did a couple of things that were very helpful. And one of them is uh, when the F-14 flying by the carrier, mm-hmm. it's a scene at the end of the movie and it does a roll and you're looking back between the tails mm-hmm. at the carrier. Bozo uh, did a test flight for that. It, it didn't work when he looked at the film. And so he sat there and goes, why didn't it work? Whatever. And he had to figure out about the F, the characteristic of the F-14's role because of the two tails and the yaw and all mm-hmm. this other, induced yaw and all this other stuff. But he did figure it out. So And so he got that good scene. But, I mean, there's time and again, he was very professional, uh, along with Rat. Of course, you know, Bozeman and Rat had to work very closely together. Mm-hmm. And they both had very high standards for briefing and leading the, uh, the flying scenes. Wow. On the other hand, it was... It was fun. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like anything you do, you find out what the limits are. And once you stay within those limits, have fun, you know? Yeah. But it is fun. Very fun. So what was your role on the movie? Okay. One thing I did was hanging out around the squadron. Mm -hmm. The actors needed to learn how to climb up an F-14. So I go... Okay, I'll show you. <laughs> so I took like six of them down in the hangar and I said, okay, pilots, you climb up like this. Rios, you climb up like this. You know, and the reason is that when you get to the top of the ladder, the pilots go forward and the Rios go back. Yeah. yeah. So you so you start differently because you have to end differently. Yeah. And then, yeah, there's more. And then also I uh, many people at Miramar contributed – uh, sayings. I mean, there, there was a there was a Rio at Miramar. I think Sobes used to say this. Who used to say, "Do some pilot shit." A guy <laughs> actually said that. He told the the writers they put that down, and that was well. When Jaws and I had been flying over the desert in Yuma one time, I said, "Watch the mountains." So I said, "Well, you guys can use that." And so they've got that in the movie also. Goose tells Maverick, "Watch the mountains." So guys yeah. contributed little lines like that. Wow. My my biggest involvement was uh, a couple f- few flying scenes in the F5F. I think I'm in the F5F where they where they get communicated with, you know, the inverted like that. No, give them the bird. I'm in the, yeah. I, yeah, where he gives them the bird. I'm in the back of that F5F. Now they filmed that scene a couple of times, but I looked at the one that came out, and I think that's me. So, Sobes Flex. Sorry if you guys think it's you, Sunshine. <laughs> um. And then when filming was over, I went up to Paramount for two days with uh, with a pilot, Smegs, and uh, who was an F-14, former F-14 pilot, and we helped them do all the dialogue. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things that that we did was we uh, we had to tell them how to cut all these scenes together because they had they had a lot of scenes, but they didn't know how to put them together. Because they just didn't have the spatial picture. So, you know, uh, one thing I remember is they'd have the F-14 go up like this. Then they'd cut the scene. And the next thing, they'd have it coming down like this. Uh And we'd go, wait a minute. If a plane goes up like this, then it's got to come down like this. Uh And you've got that. You know, that film is over here. And they're going, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So they were very, I mean, they were receptive. This is our business. That's why they brought us up there, you know. So. It was, um, and, and then, so then Smegs and I, we help them to get the scenes basically together. 
And then we sat there and we watched them over and over and over again and started talking and talking about, uh, you know, what a pilot in Rio, what they would say to each other, what they'd say on the radio and mm -hmm. all this stuff. So we came up with a lot of that dialogue. And then, you know, after we finished it all, I told one of the screenwriters, he was sitting right there, I go, I don't know if people are going to understand this, you know, all the things we said. He goes, oh, don't worry, Bio. He goes, when I get done with it, they'll understand it. <laughs> so, you know, he Hollywooded it all up. And, yeah. But there was certainly a, a, lot guys, a lot of guys contributed to that movie. There's a guy named Flex that Flex to Stephanie, uh, you know, he he uh, helped. He's like the dialogue consultant or something officially listed. And then I uh, talked to other guys who said they spent time on the phone talking to writers and stuff. So there were a lot of lot of uh, hands helped with that. So I, I'm quite interested in, um, I think, I don't know where I heard it. I might have been one of them behind the scenes, but uh, who said it? It said the only people who have bigger egos and fighter pilots or Rios are actors. So how did that, how did you engage with each other? I'll tell you what, that uh, people, you know, I've, I've talked about that a little bit. That was not my experience. Okay. <clears throat> Possibly because the... Uh, the lead actors were so young. Yeah. Because when they filmed the movie, I was uh, 26. Mm -hmm. And I was the youngest, uh, 26 or 27. I was the youngest Top Gun instructor. Wow. And Tom Cruise was 23. So, you know, when you're 23, 26, that's a little bit of a difference. Mm -hmm. But, but and Tony Edwards, I believe, is the same, uh, same age as Tom Cruise, Anthony Edwards, who mm -hmm. played Goose. Mm -hmm. And... And they were young actors just trying to do a good job and have fun and all that. And I think they, you know, they seemed enthusiastic and respectful to me. Yeah. And then I met, the, I met the older guys. I met Michael Ironsides. I didn't meet Tom Skerritt. I don't, I don't think so. But uh, but Michael Ironsides, you know, you know who he is. He played uh, Jester, I guess, the EXO. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, he's like, you know, Hi. You know, he's like, he's too cool for school. So it's like, okay, whatever. So, so how realistic were the flying scenes? I mean, a lot of people criticize them, but uh, the realistic. Yeah, they're, very, they're very scripted, Mike. Right. Very scripted, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, one, they were very good mm -hmm. because it's very, it's difficult to, uh, I mean, one example was when they did the head-on passes. Yeah, I got these models here. I'm dying to use them. Yeah. So when they did the head-on passes, you know, our our standard minimum was 500 feet of separation, but the airplanes would be specs. So we had to do you know close passes, and I think we you know we probably were we were close. We were you know within 200 feet, probably less. Mm -hmm. uh, I could probably eyeball it and see, you know, <laughs> maybe 100 feet. Wow, that is, that is close. And then the other thing was, uh, they they did things that were very artificial for dramatic effect, like never leave your wingman. Yeah. Well, that's not true. That's not the way we fly. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's not the way you fly. But two F-14s flying together makes it easy to set up a conflict mm -hmm. for a non-professional movie audience. Mm -hmm. And then you know the uh, the the ranges at which they're shooting missiles and stuff. You do that, you're gonna. The guy's gonna blow up in your face, and you're probably gonna take your own self out. So yeah, exactly, yeah. So a question I've always been interested. I've not really heard about it, but um, how did the how did Miramar still function with a massive 
you didn't say it was a very big crew, but a, a, you know, a movie crew on base. They they didn't have a big impact. I mean, they stayed at the uh, they stayed at the top. They didn't do that much filming at Miramar. They did some filming, like um, yeah, they did some filming. The guys walking on the flight line and stuff. But you know, they would just uh, the crew would go out there for a couple of hours, set up, do the filming, and then clean up. You know, and and some some of it was done on weekends. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, those flight line scenes could have been done on weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the flying was not not much was filmed around the base. I mean, Bozo's uh, tower flyby was filmed on the base, and yeah. and Bozo's Bozo's story of that is on the internet. And it you know look it up, and it's it's worth hearing him tell that story. It, it's a great story. Yeah, it's brilliant. But, um, they they didn't do that much filming actual filming on the base on the flight line there's okay. a few scenes but uh, a lot of the flying scenes were done uh, either out over the ocean or up in the desert at uh, fallon okay right so we obviously seen that the black f5s were they painted especially for the movie oh yeah uh the, you know i saw a report about the navy doing a camouflage testing and i don't remember if a black jet was one of their options or not but you know people have People have thought about black jets, and certainly for a night airplane, it makes it makes a difference. Yeah. But yeah, we we didn't have any black F fives. They did it for the movie just to be evil. Yeah. And it was supposed to be uh, water based paint. It was, it was kind of a semi gloss. I mean, it's. I think it was supposed to be flat, but in some when I look back at some of my pictures, uh, you could see some some glare on the sides and stuff. Yeah. And then. Uh, Sometimes some some of the planes had big panels of paint that that just peeled off. Oh, peeling the original. Well, that wasn't in the movie, I'm guessing, unless you can. see uh, it. you can see point. it if you look closely, but it, it's not that noticeable. But then when our guys went to wash the paint off at the end of the filming, the jets they look you know just dingy, like you know it's just hard yeah. to wash off all that black paint, you know. Yeah. So it took a few weeks before they looked normal again. Yeah, so overall, could you sum up your time on Top Gun or your experience with it? What, the movie? Yeah, the movie, yeah. Amusing. <laughs> I mean, it was fun. We we went to uh, the uh, premiere, and and I had seen the uh, – I saw the movie up, in, uh, up at Paramount. They invited all the instructors up to what was called the cast and crew preview, as I recall. Mm-hmm. But that was the first time we saw the movie on a big screen – Paramount beautiful theater. I mean, it was amazing. Just because you know the sound was all cranked up, mm-hmm. the close up of the jets, all the action, all the colors. I mean, because Tony Scott is a master of visual impact. That's, there you go. Yeah. So, Bio, can you tell us what happened after your instruction at Top Gun? You went back to, I think, VF two. Is that correct? Exactly correct. I mean, as I said, I was I was uh, comfortable as a Top Gun instructor. I mean, you know, after a while, you're going to get you're going to figure it out. And so it becomes a a manageable level of stress. Mm -hmm. You know, you you know how to do what you're supposed to do. It's it's uh, the standards don't go down, but you can manage it. But still, Mm -hmm. I was looking forward to getting back to a fleet F-14 squadron. I missed the big fighter. I missed having a radar. I was ready to go back to the fleet when they when my tour was up. Went back through the rag uh, for a quick, quick refresher, 
And then I joined VF2 just uh, about a month, month and a half before they went on deployment. Mm -hmm. The F-14s that we're flying in VF2, I believe they had all been through rework. Right, okay. That may sound mundane, but my perception as a Rio, as just a regular air crew, was that our, our radars and our availability was better than it had been before. And I knew that in VF-24, some of our jets were old, had high flight time even back then. And so they needed to be reworked. And so the problem is, you know, things steadily deteriorate until they get reworked. And then, so in VF-2, we're flying newer jets or reworked jets. And I remember very good uh, radars and good availability. So did you ever intercept any Russian bears or any of the bomber types on your cruises? I did. You know what? Mike, I, I intercepted a couple of bears, and the bear is cool because it's big. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's got those counter-rotating propellers yeah. and, you know, guns and antennas all over it and stuff. And I intercepted, I, but I only intercepted a few bears in my career. Most often, and I don't have any good pictures of, you know, a tomcat flying on a bear. I just didn't get it. Yeah. Most often, I intercepted IL-38 Mays, mm-hmm. and those are those were boring. I mean, those <laughs> guys would come by like once or twice a week, and yeah. and we'd be going like, "God, why do we have to escort them? They're not going to do anything, you know." Not... Yeah, yeah. So you know, hurry up, get out of here, so we can get back to whatever we were doing. Yeah, yeah. Now, one time, I was launched. I was, uh, I was the alert 15, which means you sit in the ready room in your flight gear. And they said, uh, and somebody called the ready room and said, tell the alert guys to get in the jet and start it up. Mm-hmm. So we went out and it was like uh, probably 5 a.m. in the middle of the Western Pacific. And my pilot and I go, all right, this is good. So we go out and we start up the jet because that means you're going to get launched. Mm-hmm. And then just as we're starting up, they say, you know, launch the alert fighters. And they came up on the radio, and, and we were the only ones that launched for some reason. I don't remember why our squadron, the, the other fighter squadron didn't launch. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this was way back in VF-24. So, so we took off. It's, uh, it's um, just before sunrise. And they go, you know, you, and you could tell the voices People are, and I, I mean, this, this story does not have a good ending. It, it's got a disappointing ending. It's just like, right. <laughs> but you could tell the voices were excited. Right. You know, very professional. Your vector is so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Alert, sharp. So we go heading out this way, and they go, uh, your signal is gate. Right. G-A-T-E. Do you know what gate means? No. Maximum afterburner. Oh, uh, right, yes. So, so my pilot goes, whoa. He goes, I've never heard that before. So we're up at, you know, we climb up a little bit higher. We're up at 30,000 feet. You go to burner. Your fuel lasts a little bit longer, but really it's it's a terrible, you know, waste of fuel. So we're zooming out at the gate. And then after a couple of minutes, luckily they told us, okay, slow down to so-and-so. And they told us that we we're going to intercept. My recollection, it was that it was either a badger or a blinder. Okay. That's pretty cool. Something rare. Yeah. And then they said, okay, you know, it's, you know, it's like uh, 
160 miles away or whatever. I'm looking on a radar. I'm not seeing anything. And then they say, orbit where you are. Mm-hmm. I go, what? Yeah, orbit. So we sat there. We orbited. And then after about 15 minutes, they said, come home. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I think everyone wants that kind of elusive or rare aircraft intercept, yeah. So after I uh, left VF2, I did an unexpected six years of staff jobs. That mm-hmm. was was not the plan. I thought I'd go do a quick staff job and come back to the fleet. But So then I was selected to uh, be a squadron XO and CO. And I had to go to another refresher, and this time it was in VF-101 at Oceana, because mm-hmm. Miramar was being handed over to the Marine Corps. Yeah. The Tomcats were being consolidated at Oceana. I mean, the whole world changed. Yeah. So then I get back to the fleet, and the Tomcats are carrying bombs. Yeah. And and there's, you know, half the squadrons are Bs and Ds, and I was back in my beloved F-14A. <laughs> well, guess what? The young lieutenants, because I remember talking to these guys about this, they loved the A. The guys in VF-211 did not sit there and say, oh, I wish I was flying a D. No, the D was a great airplane, but these guys liked the jet they were in. Mm-hmm. And they were they were uh, very uh, professional about, about every aspect of the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said earlier, Top Gun, the threat, everything became more complicated and more challenging. Mm-hmm. These guys just said, "How high is the bar? Okay, I'll jump. I'll jump that high." Mm-hmm. The Navy instituted a uh, a very effective and professional aircrew training program. Uh, you know, strike fighter weapons tactics training, and uh, and the lieutenants spent a lot of time. They spent time, free time in the ready room studying. When back in the in the old days, we would spend free time in the ready room, you know, reading magazines or telling jokes. Yeah. Uh, almost every flight was, uh, virtually every flight was a well-planned and well-executed training flight. Mm-hmm. Whereas back in the day, we would sometimes go out and just, you know, do some training, but it's like it wasn't very challenging. Yeah. So everything became much more professional, and it was uh, – it was for the good of the Navy. You know, it was, it was very good for the Navy uh, fighter community. Mm-hmm. And the lieutenants, had, they did not lack enthusiasm. I mean, they had the same enthusiasm and everything that I had when I was a lieutenant. So overall, how many hours did you get on the F-14 and did you enjoy it? <laughs> Wait a minute, did Silly I enjoy question. it? Okay, <laughs> yeah. let me think about it if I enjoy it. I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> F-14 hours, listen to this, 2,400 and 99.7. Wow. That is a lot of hours. I know, but I could have had 2,500. And on my last flight, I went flying with uh, with Twist. And it was just a 1v0 because they, they the squadron was doing a, uh, a competitive bombing exercise. And they said, Skipper, if we give you multiple airplanes, you know, to go out and have a multi-plane air, um, you know, joyride, it's going to hurt us tomorrow. So I said, okay, I'll just take one plane and, you know, do a short flight. So Twist and I went out and did a, a short flight, checked the block. And he goes, do you want to fly anymore? Well, I didn't know I was three-tenths of an hour short oh. of 2,500. So, yeah. <laughs> so I go, oh, let's go back. 
And then I did my log book and, you know, a couple of weeks later I added up the time and it's like, man. Oh, God. <laughs> Still can't complain though, can you? Mike, looking back on everything, I, I mean, I can't believe that I get to do all that. But also the, uh, you know, a word that, that comes to mind is rewarding. I mean, yeah. when I was a teenager and I wanted to fly jets, I never thought I'd be saying it's rewarding. Yeah. But it really is. And it's also, I've, I've only touched the surface on uh, living in the squadron, running a squadron, the things you learn from, uh, you know, your petty officers like, you know, Lance Yost and Airman Ron Long and John Wendelin and all these guys, you know. Uh, I've only touched the surface on, on the things that you learn from all these guys. So, Bio, you're also an author. Could you tell us about this? You don't miss much, do you, Mike? I don't know. You know, one day, uh, two years two years after I retired, I, I had a job as a defense contractor, and I was driving home from work, and I thought, I'm going to write a magazine article about making the movie Top Gun. And then within like a minute, I said, no, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> as you did. So I, I talked to my wife, Laura, and and she goes, yeah, I think, you you know, that sounds like a good idea. Well, I mean, I didn't, of course, I didn't have to ask her permission. But uh, one, you know, writing a book is demanding. And so it helps if you have the support of your significant other. Oh. And two, she's proven to be, you know, a very, a very good advisor, editor, etc. So I worked on the book. It was, uh, it was fun writing it. And then I worked on uh, getting it published. And the thing about getting published is I wanted to go with a conventional publisher. So I talked to some guys who, uh, who self-published and they're happy they did, but I wanted to go with the conventional publisher. So I had to get a literary agent and all that. And you know what, Mike, it was just a new, a new uh, field of endeavor. One thing that I found was a lot of uh, aviation authors. I mean, they're very helpful. I asked a lot of people for, I asked them for questions, I asked them for assistance, and they were very helpful. So eventually my book, I found a literary agent, we got a uh, publisher, and my first book was published, you can see that. Yep. This was published in, uh, in 2010, mm -hmm. and it came out as a hardcover, but I, I like the soft cover, mm -hmm. which is all that's available now, because it has a bonus chapter, and the price, I like the price. <laughs> and it's they're uh, they're nice books. I mean, the photos, the color photos, still look uh, still look great in the soft cover. So, one thing that writing a book has done is given me the exposure to uh, you know I get to relive this. Um, I, I do book signings. I meet a lot of people. I meet uh, young teenagers who who are enthusiastic. I meet guys my age who wish they had had done this or, or tried to do it and it didn't work out for him. Mm -hmm. So it, uh, it's given me an appreciation for my own experiences, Yeah, you know, and, and it's been fun to relive them. And then after a couple of years, I decided to uh, write a second book because uh, I was getting, you know, a fair number of questions about how did you get there? Yeah. So I wrote before Top Gun days. Yeah. And that also has, uh, you know, a lot of nice pictures as maybe you may be able to see. And then uh, a couple of things about before Top Gun days, it, it talks about Pensacola and then the F-14 rag. Mm -hmm. 
and I admit that it was challenging uh, when I was going through my training. So at the end of the book, I think I put in four stories from VF24 that say, okay, here's what I did when I got to my squadron and I learned to be a Rio. Uh -huh. And so they talk about, you know, okay, this is, this is what you can do after all that training when uh -huh. you, you get, you know, better at it. Yeah. But one cool thing I've seen is your book's now in Japan, isn't it? Have they translated it into Japanese? Is that correct? Today, I got a Japanese a copy of the Japanese book. Wow. Now, a couple of years ago, it was translated into Chinese. And it's been available in Chinese for a couple of years also. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So, And that's pure coincidence. Mm -hmm. my, uh, my original literary agent knew a, uh, a gentleman from uh, Europe who became a Chinese literary agent. Mm -hmm. And so, <laughs> I know, he is yeah. a uh, former European fighter pilot. I don't want to go into any more details, but European <laughs> fighter pilot. He uh, married a Chinese lady, and uh, and he heard about my book, and so they purchased the rights, and, and they had it translated, and they sell it in China. That's brilliant. No, that's, that's... The Japanese translation was done by an aviation enthusiast who loves F-14s, uh, and the U.S. Navy, he he did it as a, a project on his own initiative. But then, you know, we went, we had to get to the uh, the Japanese publisher, purchase the rights through my publisher. That's how it's done, mm -hmm. and uh, so it's just coming out now in uh, June of 2017. Oh, brilliant! Japanese, yeah. yep. Yeah, not bad. A big market there, I'm sure. So, have you got any uh, projects on the go at the moment? <laughs> You know, I hate to admit this, but I will. Because yeah. when I wrote this first book, when I wrote the first book, I did not tell anybody. Mm -hmm. I told my wife. I didn't even tell my mom. Wow, okay. Very secretive. Yes. Well, that's because uh, you don't know what's going to happen or exactly. how long it's going to yeah. take. So anyway, I, I am actually working on a third book right now. Exciting. And, uh, and one reason that... Uh, which is going to cover VF2 and uh, VF211. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing, I've got to give credit to the uh, the new editor that I met uh, a couple of years ago, Dave Robinson, who was a former Navy multi-engine pilot around 1960. Oh, wow. But he is, he is a, uh, a great editor and a great guy to work with. And so uh, we're, I'm working on book three. I will look forward to any progress on that. So, um, don't, where don't can hold we... your breath. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> it's not going to come out this year, I'm sure. Okay. So. We'll keep us updated, I'm sure. Okay. But uh, So where can we find yourself and your work? Oh, thanks for asking. Uh, my website is uh, topgunbio.com. T-O-P-G-U-N-B-I-O.com. And uh, that's where, that's you know. And I also have a Facebook page, uh, Top Gun Days, uh, you know, if you type in Top Gun Days on Facebook, you should you should get there. I should find you, yeah. Yeah. So, great. So, we, uh, one thing I do want to ask is, do you have a favorite aircraft? I'm sure I can know the answer. You, you know what? Of course, I love the F-14, but my, my longtime emotional favorite was the F-8. Oh, okay. I was wrong. I like, I like the F-106. I mean, because it, it's when I grew up, you know, yeah, when I was a time. kid. Yeah. And then also, I think the best-looking jet fighter ever 
ever made was the Grumman F11 Tiger. Yeah, that is a beautiful one. A long nose Tiger. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, a clean Hawker Hunter is is in that similar category. Just a pure, pretty design. So those are some of my favorites. Uh, But whenever I get talking about airplanes, you know, I like a lot of them. Yeah. I think like a lot of it, it's really hard to pin down. But uh, is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown or flown in? Well, when I left VF-24, my first plan was uh, was to try to come to uh, England and fly tornadoes. Oh, yeah. I wanted to be a backseater in tornado because a tornado was new back then. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking, oh, it would be cool to go over to England. And, you know, I, I figured my Tomcat experience would, you know, be a good launching point and everything. But then when I uh, when the Top Gun instructor opportunity became available, that you know I, I uh, changed my direction. I never had another chance to go back and uh, and get in the tornado. Yeah. So, but but other than that, I've got to say, um, I think I was fortunate because I I was of the right age to fly the Tomcat. I mean, I know it was in service, you know, uh, roughly forty years. Mm-hmm. Let's see, 74, oh, oh no, to 2006, I'm sorry, 30, sorry, <laughs> it's been 40 years, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. I got my calculator right here. <laughs> so I know it was in service for a period of time, but I was born in the right, you know, span to fly the Tomcat with my eyesight. You know, I couldn't be a pilot. And anyway, it all worked out well. So I, I was happy that, that I got to fly the Tomcat. I, yeah. I've got a couple of flights in the F-4, mm-hmm. um, which... You know, a great jet, and and that's that's another jet. When we were talking about comparing airplanes, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think any Phantom pilot would admit or, or would say, "Oh, you know, the Tomcat's better," or "Tomcat's always kicked my ass," or anything like that. Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, I'll give them a good fight. Yeah, and and they sure would, you know. Yeah. So, well, finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Nope. <laughs> Never do. I, and now I will admit that, uh, and and one, as you probably noticed, I can give you a long answer to any question. <laughs> I will admit I'm not one of those guys who, who brings every aviation into everything. Yeah. You know, so when I'm at work, I don't, I, I don't work on aviation stuff. Now I work on, you know, cyber stuff, mm-hmm. but I don't translate everything into aviation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when there's, you know, I guess it, I guess it's like a dog squirrel. So if it's, yeah. uh, it, it, you're, talking, you're in there. Oh, air, airplanes. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And Mike, I like listening to other guys tell stories also. I mean, we used to sit around the O club and, you know, like, in a sometimes it was just mostly guys or, you know, once we were married and we needed to talk to each other to stay out of trouble, you know, we We'd sit around and everybody would just tell stories about screw ups or great things or whatever, and it was it was just fun. This for for growing up wanting to be in that community and then to be in that community, it's, you know, it just I felt very fortunate. Yeah, there's a great saying which I love. Uh, all air crew say there's two things they like talking about: airplanes and themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very true from every air crew, but it's brilliant. <laughs> That's good. So, Bayo, I just want to thank you very much for joining us and being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure for myself, and I know our viewers are going to love this interview, so thank you. Mike, thank you. Thanks for having me, and uh, if you want to do anything else, just ring me up. Will do. Thanks very much.
Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.